Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. All right. Well, welcome, everyone. So today we have with us Chris Jenkins, who is a developer advocate at Confluent. Did I get that right, Chris? You did indeed. Awesome. So um, great to have you. But today, maybe we'll get into Kafka. Who knows? Um, But what we did want to talk about is Haskell, since I discovered that you are quite the Haskell fan. So um, and we have not talked about Haskell. But before we get into that, um, Bruce, Winter Tech Forum, it's coming up. You can still still show up. I've redone the if you want to just show up using the bus in the cheapest way i've redone the page oh nice shows bus how to transportation information yes which i've actually taken and i like yeah, a lot i will do it yeah. again yeah so even though crest butte is in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. it's not too hard to get to yeah it's, yeah yeah it's yeah, there's, possible there's various ways to do it yeah and, uh, and this morning as bruce was pointing out earlier it was negative 17 fahrenheit um but in the middle of the night yes. yeah yeah uh, but i think week after next is not going to be that cool. oh yeah it's the, gonna warm up by the and, time we hit march yeah we tend to have warmer weather but yeah. still lots of snow this lots year, of snow so, yeah. so more coming next week so yep. snow mm-hmm. should be great for skiing for those mm-hmm. who want to do that mm-hmm. okay hopefully you all can join us on, at the winter tech forum okay and chris uh tell us about yourself but also make sure you tell us about your podcast Oh, yes. Never miss a chance to plug that one. <laughs> so um, what can I tell you about myself? I um, I got my first computer when I was 10 years old uh, and have, haven't looked back since. Um, I did a computer science degree and then stuff and stuff and stuff and eventually co-founded my own company, Trading Gold. Whoa. Uh, was CTO of that for 10 years. Left for a million reasons, but uh, went into contracting. And I can lead into what we're going to talk about because yeah. I really got into Lisp, and by that I really got huh. into Closure. Huh. And I did a contract with a company, weirdest tech stack you've ever heard. They were Closure Script on the front end and Haskell yeah. on the back end. Okay, and that was my first huh. exposure to industrial wow. Haskell. And, and how long yeah. was that? That was about eighteen months, which for a contract is relatively long. No, no, here. I mean, how long ago? It, oh, ooh, um, let me think. That was maybe ten years, maybe a bit less. Okay, so you yeah. you've been into Haskell for ten years. Yeah, yeah. I I guess I have. Yeah, <laughs> what fun times. <laughs> nice. Uh-huh. Okay, and what's your podcast? My podcast is streaming audio, uh, or search for the Confluent Podcast, and we talk mostly about Kafka and the stuff around it. So like event streaming, um, event systems, design, real-time data. all that fun stuff. Yeah, all those good things. We did an episode on CQRS and event sourcing with, I think, one of your colleagues. um, Oh, who was that? Anna. Didn't we have Anna on? Anna McDonald. Well, she explained Kafka to us. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was a fun one. That so we won't been. re well maybe we will rehash some of that or go into some of that but but um we uh so to kick this off with functional programming and haskell stuff i i did have done scala for quite a long time now and it was my first real forte into functional programming and it took a long time for me to kind of get it from a traditional java background mm. but now i'm like i i I define myself as a functional programming zealot uh, who (laughs) often has to balance reality and, you know, pragmatism with that zealotry. And so I'm, I've totally drank the Kool-Aid. I, I like functional programming for me is the pinnacle of what I've done in programming for um, probably like almost three decades now or something. Yeah. Hmm. I guess I've been programming Mm. like three decades. So anyways, Love functional programming, but in the world of Scala, uh, there's a there's a number of people who have come from the Haskell world. Most of them have come from the Haskell world into Scala because they wanted a paying job, yes. and so and apparently that's not as plentiful in the world of Haskell. But well, we can Haskell, talk about that. But yes, let's talk. Okay, but before we do, I'll finish my little summary yeah. here uh, intro. Um, so Haskell, at least from the that side of my experience in in Scala, was always seen as like like the 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 golden standard for functional programming. The like the if you want to do functional programming, 
you got to do Haskell. Like it is, it is the way it is the best there is. So <laughs> I'll, I'll put in my, uh, my perspective, which is, um, I'm not sure actually how long I've been struggling with uh, functional programming, but I have learned a ton from it. It is fascinating. I'm struggling mostly with the, uh, it's like, boy, how do we, transition to it because it's so different mm. the the kind of thinking that you do is so different from how people are trained yeah and from the imperative well imperative and, and then we added the object mm. stuff and i'm doing a presentation at the uh upcoming pycon and and it's called rethinking objects and it's like oh, okay. let's look you know, because you've seen a lot of things, probably articles where people come out and they, they've probably been exposed to functional programming and they go, oh, objects were a mistake and, and it's all terrible. And when I started digging <laughs> into those, I started going, well, you haven't really, I mean, you've shown some issues, but you haven't really proven it. It's like, because I was hoping, oh, I can just go down this list and say, here's why objects are a failure. And you can't really do that. Um you know, there are benefits, there are, there are ideas in there. Um, and and the idea that uh, functional programming, well, in, in fact, my friend Bill Venters, he said, well, objects were sort of made up, whereas functional programming was like derived from, yeah. from mathy thinking. Huh. And it's like, okay, that's all very interesting, but can we move people into this or is this going to be do we have to have a generation of object-oriented programmers just die off and then, <laughs> and then the functional programmers will come Ouch. along? That's, that's Ooh, bleak. That's, that is bleak. That's a really bleak way of putting it. Well, um, historically. God, well, there's a lot to unpack in what you've just said. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, let's there's, go. There's, um, well, let's start with the the I. Let's start with uh, Turing completeness. Okay, let's start. Yeah, because people say one thing you often hear when people are debating programming languages and different styles of programming is they're all basically the same. They're all Turing complete. Programming languages are a question of style, right? And that's true and completely unuseful, unhelpful, because we don't write programming languages for the sake of the programming power. We write them to make programming easier for us, for humans, right? We, I think it was Grace Hopper who invented the first high-level programming language, not because she couldn't program in, in assembly, not because she couldn't do the job in assembly, but because it was too hard. She needed to make life easier or wanted mm. to. Yeah. So what makes life easier in programming languages? And one part is the familiar. If you've been trained in objects, Mm. that familiarity has a real value. And thinking in functions is a hard shift to make. I find, you know, people get hung up on the syntax of Lisp or Haskell. But actually, once they've got the ideas, the syntax is trivial, Mm. you know. Um, Yeah, syntax has a huge impact on familiarity. I have have found But it's very surface. more I've learned, the more I can look at, because initially when you look at Haskell or a Haskell-like language, I think my first serious one was Elm. Um, mm. It was, it's like so foreign. And then, but then when you go, oh, I see, you're doing this for that reason, or you're doing this for that reason, then it's like, okay, I, I can look at the syntax and make sense of it. Yeah. Like once you understand the why of Korean, yes. it does become easier to accept it and understand, yeah. kind of embrace the, the syntax of it. And one thing I think is like a telltale sign is once you've embraced Korean, it becomes harder to accept languages that don't have it. <laughs> yeah. like, that's a standard so tool that should yep. be everywhere. Yeah, uh, like expression orientedness. Well, is, yeah, yeah, I think a really good that's, example of this. That's annoying. Yeah, when you when you look at languages and you go, why did you bother with statements at all? Yeah, what yeah. was your? And I'm I'm gonna guess the motivation was, oh well, we didn't want to waste the assembly language instructions hmm. to to make it an expression rather easier than to map a statement to. To the underlying assembly yeah, statement, because assembly up. is statement oriented, right? You know, like, 
Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Oh, so, just a more yeah. direct mapping. It may be that everything started as statements, and somebody half introduced functions. Right. Huh. Look at this. Um, Look at this thing where you can have expressions as well, and they actually just return a value to you magically. You don't yeah. have to stick it on the stack and then query the stack as a separate operation. I yeah. would believe that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Just evolutionary, the evolutionary mm -hmm. perspective. It is. So, uh, functional programming. It some of the challenge of of people adopting it is that there's huge value in familiarity and. Is that yeah. a good summary of what you're saying? I, well, I think, I think, and I find this like with uh, there's a huge parallel between relational databases and event systems like Kafka. The, the thing we get hung up on is teaching people the technology, but actually everyone's very good at picking up new technology. We're trained for it, but what's harder is giving them whole new ways of thinking about designing systems. Huh. That I think is the real challenge. Yeah. And specifically yeah. for Haskell, I think the big challenge, the absolute core of Haskell that you have to get to get it is side effects. Hmm. You have to understand what a side effect is and why it matters before you're really going to understand why Haskell is trying to be what it is. Yes. Yeah. So understanding that kind of deep internal motivation helps you understand why the approach is so different from what you're used to yeah oh. and why it's a sensible approach and then you start to want to think mm. in that way and then you can build systems because if you don't understand that you're just like this is painful why am i doing this 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 right you're you, you okay so we're, we're now going to use the error monad and here's how it works and you're going this looks harder <laughs> this looks like this looks more messy why What's the problem with exceptions? Why? Why, yeah, why can't I just call throw? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That worked before, yeah. and now you're you're making this much more complicated. And mm. so, if you don't understand that, and my developing theory is that we get early adopters, mm. and their motivation is to get somewhere as fast as possible to kind of, you know, skip over the water like a stone and not mm. not go into the you know they're trying to get to the end and so when they explain something all that intermediate stuff is like i i i can make it work i don't have to really understand it in depth and so as explainers they're not doing a good job and they're not doing what you're saying they're not going okay let's start with why are we doing this and then when we show you the syntax, you're you're not going to go, you're not going to freak out and go, this is too weird. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I mean, it's a really difficult problem to balance because you also, in order to get people to that point where they really understand it, you want to get them to have some victory, some sense of accomplishment with it today. Yes. Right. And this is why you mentioned Elm. I really like Elm because it's a really nice, friendly tries to help you functional programming language with which you can get some interesting fun results easily like you yeah. can stick fun stuff on a web page and see the fruits of your labor as you're learning and yeah. that's a nice feature yeah yeah and probably one of the reasons why javascript has been so predominant and everyone knows it is because you can just go into your browser you know, open up the developer console and start writing code and immediately see visually thing visual things happening on yeah. in your browser and that that there's something very really satisfying. Cool. Yeah, we don't really pay enough attention to the onboarding experience for the novice. Yeah. Because oh that's boring. Let's get to the really fun <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that's great about JavaScript, I'll give it this credit, is it has this deployment model where I can send my source code to my aunt or my cousin who knows nothing about programming and they can run it. Yeah. Because I just stick it in a web page. Yeah. And they don't even know they're running a programming language. I don't think yeah. any other language has that deployment model. Right. Right. Mm. It's amazing. Amazing. No. So for Haskell, I I have uh, never really done any Haskell, except for the the Elm, which isn't Haskell, but Elm, uh, but is Haskell-ish. The closest I've gotten, mm. and part of the reason is that I've always looked at Haskell as being for the like the experts, like the people who like like really understand functional programming. And so there's there's always been this hesitancy for me to get into Haskell just because I'm like, oh, that's for like 
That's for the pros. And academics. <laughs> yeah, and academics. Uh, yeah. I think you may be confusing cause and effect because it's a great training ground for functional programming. Yeah. And if you, if you are a zealot and you really want to get into it, I'd say go to the source, man. Right. <laughs> go to the source. <laughs> right to Haskell. Yeah. Uh, tell us about Haskell. Like, like what? How would you describe it? Yeah, how would you describe it? That's a good question. Okay, um, I would describe it as a language that, a functional programming language, one of the original ones, that was really concerned with the idea of side effects, right? Hmm. Um, maybe we should describe side effects separately, but for now, it, it's built around the idea that programs shouldn't have unexpected side effects. And so we're going to build a language that eliminates them wherever we can, and where we can't eliminate side effects, we're going to get, teach the compiler to control their scope. And so you end up with this language where you can say things like, I want to, uh, I want to calculate the tax on a sale, right? So that's just multiply this number by that number. That is a pure function, and the compiler can tell me it's a pure function. Now, I want to record the tax collected to the government. And the compiler can say, well, that's a function that needs access to the internet, right? Because it has to talk to the government yeah. server. If you imagine a futuristic government that can actually do this in real time. <laughs> now, imagine the network goes down. The compiler can now say, well, that first bit of code can't, it won't fail because it doesn't need the network. And I can prove that at compile time. But the other bit of code might fail because it has the side effect of needing network access. Yeah. And you can do things and you can that scales out into the whole language. Like if you're a Java person, right, you can have the compiler track which bits of code expect to have access to logging and which don't. Hmm. Now, imagine you're a Java programmer waking up one day to find there's a massive security hole in the most popular logging framework. That this would never happen. Hypothetically. Okay. Haskell could say, well, all this code can't possibly be affected. Because if it compiles, I can guarantee you it doesn't use logging. All this code, it potentially is affected because I know it uses logging. And you can, you've almost got like built-in security sandboxes across your whole code base and built-in impact sites across your whole code base. Okay, so the idea is not just the effects, but being able to... I don't know, have a list of them and go, okay, I know, I know if the internet is working, this might work. And if my database server is working, then this might work. And so that you can somehow reason about the individual effects. Yeah, I'd, I'd say fundamentally, it's about saying side effects are inherently unpredictable. They're what make code unreliable because they are hidden behavior. Hmm. Um, the side effect of needing the network makes your code unpredictable in the face of network errors. The side effect of needing a database makes your code unpredictable in the event that your database goes down. And so having recognized that side effects complicate programming, the whole language is built around trying to eliminate or control side effects of any kind. And gives you a set of tools for dealing with that. Yeah, I guess I and that know. giving you the set of tools to deal with them, I think, is key because in most languages that don't do this, it it is the norm to just ignore the things that can go wrong. Yeah. Well, the and, programmer handles those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you only and you may only actually deal with the things that can go wrong once they've actually gone wrong and you've gotten the error in your production system. And there's instructions yeah. in the documentation that says, okay, so the programmer, if this fails, the programmer is responsible for handling it and these are all the things that can go wrong. Have a good time. Yeah. yeah. And we end up because of that. I can name check you here. Because of that, we end up with a lot of programming that just worries about the happy path. And so it becomes great if everything's working, which we know as programmers is rare. Yeah. And it all falls apart if things break. Whereas Haskell is like this, this wonderful, horrible thing where it forces you to deal with your errors before it will even compile. Yeah. Which is a horrible experience when it's thrust in your face the first time you start learning. But as you get used to it, it's like, yeah, if something's going to go wrong, I want to know now when I'm programming, not next week once it's in production. 
Exactly. It's a really well, nice feature. Yeah. Yeah. But that's only if you write code that ha- fails. Yeah. And that's the other <laughs> right, could we Could we possibly do here a dedicated podcast on how not to do that? That's, yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a long Who one. Who would we interview? Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I want to know, you said... You said, okay, so we got the side effects. We want to know about them and we want to control them. So what does mm. this control mean? So the control is that Haskell has this mechanism for baking side effects into the type system in a way that if your code uses networking, that's baked into the type signature. Right? And if your code uses something that uses networking, that gets baked up into your type signature all the way up the tree. So you cannot avoid accepting, noticing, dealing with the fact that you are now subject to the side effect of networking. And it does that primarily through the word I was going to try and avoid saying, but you can't discuss Haskell for an hour without saying it, through monads. Yeah. Yeah. But I think people often confuse what monads are. Haskell is trying to get rid of side effects, and then it realized early in its inception that monads were a great way of making them easy to program with hmm. so we can monads became the tool to do what you're talking about which is the controlling the side effects the monad is the tool to to make that easy from the programmer easier yeah, yeah. It, it's it's a it's almost a developer experience tool for making tracking side effects pleasant hmm. um Okay, so let's. You seem to be somebody who thinks about how to describe things. So, <laughs> so do it. Do it. Tell us what you think a monad is. Okay. Um, so, what's the best way to describe this? There are lots of ways, and I could put on a mathematician's hat and try and describe it to you that way. Don't, I don't you know could put on helpful. the uh, Chipotle burrito hat and try that way too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But what what monads are are a way of saying, uh, I want to. I've got this context in which we could access the network, right? And take take an example of running two HTTP requests, right? That's obviously got the side effect of networking. So I need to deal with the fact that either of those requests may fail. If you do that in Go, what you'll have to do is, if you're being a good programmer, good responsible programmer, you'll make but you, the first But that's call. optional. <laughs> that's that's right. optional. Sadly, optional. optional in Go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure all the listeners to this podcast are good responsible programmers, obviously. Yeah. Um, in Go, like you call the function, and then you have to check the error return value. And it's on you every time to check it, right? In Haskell, what you, what you can do, what, what you can do in other languages is pretend there are no errors. And that's bad. In Haskell, a monad lets you write code that pretends there's no errors within the context of that monad, groups them all up, anything that could possibly go wrong, and lets you deal with it outside. So you end up with like this sandbox where you can say, okay, I've got this thing that has the side effect of networking. I'm going inside that sandbox and I'm going to pretend it doesn't happen. And I can just do regular programming. I do a get, I get a result. I do another get, I get another result. I do something with it. And then when I come outside of that sandbox, now it's on me to deal with that error that either of those requests could have. But I would argue that you're in the sandbox, you're just programming along, and the sandbox is capturing that error information. And then when you return from your, your your Function. When you step outside of the sandbox, <laughs> that package is returned, which includes your result information and all of the potential error stuff that goes wrong. And yes. the package uh, that would is, be an applicative is <laughs> the package <laughs> is the monad. Nerd. Package is the monad. Yeah, um, yeah. You could use package instead of sandbox, and I think it ends up being as roughly the same thing. Mm-hmm. And then you well, could I'm say saying that the sandbox is what returns the package. Um, it, it collects yeah. the information and creates and returns the package. handles giving you that that result out of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, and then you could say, well, why can't I just have um, try and catch and throw? Right. Well, you can, but then you say, okay, let me think of another side effect. 
I've got this data that may or may not exist, right? So you have this API called option, probably, in your programming language, and that lets you deal with all these different, um, it lets you deal with the side effect of may not exist. And you've got all this separate syntax and all these separate API methods for dealing with the side effect of may not exist. And in Haskell, we just say, we don't need a separate API. We, we have one API for monads, and that handles network exceptions, the side effect that things may not exist. It handles logging. It handles connecting to a database. There's one universal abstraction for the side effect of. Hmm. And that's everywhere in programming. Hmm. Every so time you write a non-pure function, it's there. Does Haskell then, does the language directly support all of this stuff? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and has lots of them out of the box, but has a core infrastructure for saying, I'd like to use a new side effect you haven't thought of and bake it and make it look transparently available to the language as though it were anything else. And what is it what is it used to to do that additional transparency? Is that like um monad transformers type classes? Yeah, <laughs> right. Um it you define your own monad with your own rules, which isn't as hard as it sounds. And then if you've done that, you get access to do notation, which is this syntactic sugar that makes working with monads like easy. Or comprehensions in Scala. Yeah, yeah, a lot like that. Mm -hmm. um, fact, so it just, the... the language just, if you define the monad, the language just magically sees it and incorporates yeah. it. Yeah, you're basically in implementing like an interface, you'd call it in Java, mm -hmm. the monad interface. And it has some rules to help you make sure you implement it right. And sometimes people call them monad laws, and people get scared by that. But it's just rules on how to get it right. Yeah. Um, and then, and then you can just use it like you would any other monad. Yeah. Um, okay. Um. So side effects. Uh, the, that sounds like one of the kind of core motivating features of Haskell, and and a reason that so many people are attracted to it is that isolation, the ability to be forced to deal with the things that can go wrong at compile time rather than at runtime. Yeah, get your problems today instead of tomorrow, which is a mixed <laughs> blessing, but I like That's it. right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it seems so painful to have to deal with my problems today, you know. <laughs> I would like to sometimes just kick that can down the road, but. Welcome to the therapy podcast. <laughs> that's right, exactly. Well, and there is the Go language, if, if that's your organization. <laughs> there you go. Um, I think there's some other interesting pieces to Haskell that, that I hear talked about. One of those is type classes. Do you want to go into type classes? Um, yeah. Now, some people will shoot me for saying this, but I don't think spiritually spiritually at least they're not that different from interfaces hmm. um you define an api called a type class and then you can implement different instances of it they're a bit less coupled to the there's a there's, interfaces in java say always feel a lot more tightly coupled to the specific objects whereas type classes in haskell they feel a bit more standalone Right, you just say the code for someone else's um, data structure. Yeah, but is essentially, there inheritance in Haskell? Um, there, you can that kind of thing through type classes. So type classes can inherit. You can say this is a new interface that extends the previous interface. Okay, but there isn't. Is there an, implementation inheritance? No, because you wouldn't okay. have. Objects, so you can have a data structure that has an inter uh, type class implemented on it. So imagine um, an array, and you implement an interface for arrays. Right. Now you can have the closest you get to inheritance is you have a new data structure which has arrays in it, mm -hmm. and you implement that same interface. Yeah, it's it's it really is composition. So you could um, compose a new data structure that's array plus a type class or something like but that. But inheritance yeah. ultimately Behavior. is just fancy composition. Yeah. yeah. You're, or you're dangerous putting... composition, depending on your... <laughs> so, but is type classes generally the way to kind of add behavior to, to data structures or... Is that what generally, 
No, generally functions perform behaviors on data structures. Okay. Where type yep. classes come in is where you want to have the similar behavior or the same external behavior for many different data types. Right. Okay. So yep. um, you might want to implement. Yeah. Yeah. So you okay. might want to implement size on lists and arrays and vectors and maps, right? So and on a, a foo, type class, right? On, on the foo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, size of user. If that's not a personal question. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and so the type class, you would just create a type class for size of person, and that would allow yeah. you to, to add that yeah. behavior. And then someone so, can extend their data structure to implement your interface as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, I feel like we've debated if, the, if type classes are ad hoc polymorphism or if that's something else. Well, my research said ad, ad hoc polymorphism is function overloading, hmm. but uh, yeah. So we're not sure on the the polymorphism category that. No, I'm still. I, I've used the term for so many years, and then I far, finally started asking, well, "What is polymorphism?" and realized that, oh, I had I had gotten myself into a, a little cul-de-sac about because I started with it in terms of inheritance polymorphism. Uh, yeah. And it's like, it was hard to expand. And then when you see it as, oh, well, you're actually applying the same, the quote unquote, same function to different types. Then it's like, oh, I see, that's different. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it does seem like that's a little bit of what we're doing here. Yeah, yeah. We could, I mean, it depends how deep you want to go down the rabbit hole, but we could now talk about uh, higher-kinded polymorphism. Yes. Which... <laughs> sure, why not? I don't know what that is. Well, um, so let me see if I can explain this without the use of diagrams, which could be <laughs> yeah. tricky, but this is radio, so we'll give it a go. So you could have... Imagine you have a function that doubles things, right? So if you give it an integer, it doubles it. And if you give it a string, it repeats it. Mm -hmm. Now you've got a list of things, list of integers or a list of strings. You probably have a map function that will let you call double on a list of anything, right? As long as it can be doubled, you can call double on a list of things and it will double all of them. Now... Could you extend map so that it will take it that it will apply to double on any collection of any kind, not just lists, but also arrays, vectors, maps, mm -hmm. users? Can you define a function that instead of not caring what the contained type is, doesn't actually can care what the container is? Yeah. Now, if you do that and you try and write it down, let's say in Java syntax. The first one will be list angle brackets int. Generic the second count. version is list angle brackets e. But for the third version, we need a variable for the collection. So we need like c angle brackets e. What does yeah. that look like? And what you actually end up with, it's a polymorphism of a higher kind. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah, and that's and that's a head trip, and uh, you know it trip. takes a while for to really grok when you're programming it, but it's incredibly powerful, and I don't think many other languages have it. I, well, you can Haskell does, and yeah. Scala does, and the the place the 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 places where Scala has been influenced by Haskell use this this concept heavily and it's been one of the things that's kind of made me a little hesitant to go into haskell is because i'm like it's a head trip like like because <laughs> yeah. then all of a sudden you're not thinking about tangible things anymore you're thinking about generic things kind of everywhere you're like all of your functions don't don't take and return things they return the shapes. higher kinded things yeah they just return generic shapes <laughs> yeah um, but where that gets interesting is you can do things like because the function you're calling doesn't care what collection you pass it right it you could be passing an array of something or a list of something it doesn't care as long as it's mappable yeah so you end up with this situation where you you as the caller can influence what type of collection you get back for instance so you can, um, I, th I think the clearest example of this is um, 
when you have like parsing libraries and in many languages you'll get parse int and parse string and parse float right yeah and what it would be nice if you could just call a generic parse function and the return type you're expecting determines what function actually gets called under the hood Ooh. if you could have return if you could as the caller yeah, like return. Have return type polymorphism yeah yeah then your your dx again would be much improved because you could just say parse it and give me an integer back it's yeah. up to you how and that simplifies yeah, a it... lot of code like json parsing type stuff so hmm. just backing up a little when you were saying okay higher kinded types on uh the container type itself it occurs to me that the idea of an iterator is the way that that has been done. So it's like, oh, we picked yeah. a base type. That... We said, okay, all I want to do is know that I can move through this container. So I'll have this intermediate type that does that for me. But it sounds like you're saying, oh, well, Haskell can do that without having to introduce an iterator. Yeah. And I'd also say, now correct me if I'm wrong, my Java is like, um, my modern Java is a little is a little patchy, but I think there's now iterator and iteratable since uh, like yeah, one point sure seven, one point eight. What if you and and you have to know which one you're calling? You have to know which APIs let you get through to the right one you want. Why can't I, as the caller, just say I'm going to treat the thing you return like it's an iterator here? So it's up to you to make that happen. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I, you know, I would like. Sure, for implementation reasons, you need to have a difference. But just give me the one I'm asking for back, just magically. Yeah, and if it doesn't exist, the compiler will tell you. Yeah, but as long as is someone's it, implemented that, that bridge, they do it once and for all. So you That's, have to have the type class to do this? or, or So you would have to have the type class implementation, but it's the mechanism of higher-kinded polymorphism that makes that all work transparently. Yeah. So the compiler will run off and say, uh, this is how I build the bridge from what you're expecting to the actual function. Yeah. And, the and that reason means why you end up implementing that once. Yeah. And for all. And the reason why it's higher kinded is because the, you don't have to have the concrete type on the outer um, scope. The the like outer type is is generic essentially. Yeah, and we're used to having gen genericity. Gener Generous. We're used to having we're used to having a variable in the concrete like the int, but we're not used to having um like a a, a C of E, a collection of elements. Right? There's you actually need two types to make that concrete. You need the int and the list so what is that c it's something that needs a type to become something that needs a type to become an actual concrete type and that's why it's higher kinded you're sort of climbing that ladder of abstraction and this can just go further down the chain because the thing inside could also be a higher kinded type right yeah yeah it re represents a hierarchy of of Types within other types of, of, of other types. Yeah, and that that people who understand higher kinded types would have a lot easier time uh, using Java generics or generics in any language because they well, have that yeah, mindset. I would, um, I would definitely say that's true. Possibly find it a bit constraining though. Oh, I'm uh, sure. Yeah, but yeah, but I yeah. Mean, it's, Generics. Are I think it was difficult. Was it, was it Philip Wadler's talk at Strange Loop or something a long time ago where he talked about how your functions should be as generic as you can possibly make them, and because that the constraints that that imposes actually has a lot of value in that if you look at a function that takes an A and returns an A. If you assume that you're not in Java and that that you know that that A has a two string and a you know whatever no. else, yeah. <laughs> so excluding that, there is only one possible implementation of that function that takes an A and returns an A, mm. and so you can reason about the implementation of functions more easily the more generic their their parameters and return values are. The Red Book talks about that too. No. Yeah, I think it was Philip Wadler's Theorems for Free paper that first talked about that. 
Yeah. Um, wait. Yeah. Like, and, then, and then a corresponding talk that I think maybe with the same name at Strange Loop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, Phil Wadler is one of the founding fathers of Haskell and discovered a lot of really great stuff like mm -hmm. that. Like you can reason, you can at, a, at a, an academic level reason a lot about a Haskell function just from looking at the type signature. But actually, as a jobbing programmer, you get a heck of a lot of information from a type signature in Haskell. Without looking at any of the code, you can learn a heck of a lot. And that's why I think sometimes, to a beginner, Haskell documentation looks a bit thin, because huh. these type signatures are so semantically dense. They huh. say a heck of a lot to you. One and you to read if you're that. not used to that... That yeah, back to the familiarity piece, okay. yeah, intimidating. Yeah, since um, Python has adopted, um, well, type hints they call, but basically allows you to have type signatures. Um, it's just, it, it's, I mean, it helps dramatically, mm. and and understanding the function or just even knowing, oh, well, this is a string that goes in and an int that comes out. I know something already now that I yeah. wouldn't have known without that type signature. Yeah. And so you then can Haskell get also like... brings into this the, the pureness. So from the type signature, you also know if something has side effects or not. And so then you can add kind of more reasoning to the behavior of a particular function based on that. Where, do yeah. the, where does the behavior show up in the type signature? Or the well, side you, effects or whatever. You can get, um, so I'll give you a couple of examples. You can get a function that takes um, a purchase total. The type signature will say, I take a purchase total and a sales tax rate and return a IRS acknowledgement ID in the context of network access. So I that in the context about of that function. Right. Yeah. I know something about how it fails. I know how to make it work. I know what I'll get back. That's so a very when you dense say, I get this thing back that's the IRS, IRS certificate yeah. in the context of accessing the internet. Um, now, is that in the monad returned? Is that where you see that uh, side effect? Yeah, you would see that written out. Pretty much as I said it in the type signature, which is like a one-line thing above the function, hmm. and that that saying, once you give me these two arguments, then I'm I'm a network monad whose result is an IRS ID. Okay, but you said hmm. in the type signature, like where so in the, the type, type signature, as in as in that line of code that sits above the function. I, yes, yeah. where in the type signature in the return type is that um, where you see the side effect? Yeah. Yeah, okay. the side effect is in the the last thing in the in the the piece of code you write. What it returns. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it looks I'm, like the return type. I'm I'm, you know, my my most exp highest amount of exposure to monads is really in Zio, and so I'm trying to map this Scala, oh, okay. Zio. Scala's yeah. Zio, and that you know that fits. They put it inside the monad that is returned by the function. They put in all right. the side effects. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and so it then sounds another... kind of similar and that the the side effect uh contexts are part of the monad that gets returned or or somehow expressed together mm -hmm. um and then you get things like another just to give you another example you get um type signatures like i take a list of a and I return a list of A, provided I can call double on A. Give me any A that I can call the double function on. So that provided is your type class. Yeah. So you have yeah. things called type class constraints that say, I don't care what you give me as long as I can call this interface on it. Yeah. So type classes sound really fundamental to Haskell. Yeah, yeah. As soon as you want to start implementing the same behavior for lots of different types of data, you're into type classes. Hmm. Okay. Um, that was helpful. Uh, what, what else about Haskell is kind of like headline features for the language or ways that you use it or motivations? Well, so I there's no one thing... variables. Uh, well, uh, no, I think one thing I should probably say before we finish off, because the higher yeah. kind of type stuff is like, it can seem like astronauty stuff, right? Like 
But the practical advantage of it is when you start writing code, when you're a beginner, you write the function that says, I take a list of ints and I can double them, right? And then as you get slightly smarter with it, you realize, actually, I don't need to be so specific. I can make my code a lot more useful by saying, I don't need ints, I'll take anything you can double. And then one day the penny drops that actually you're being too specific about lists as well. And you could make this function more useful for every type of container just by using another variable. And it's like your code becomes much more useful to the people calling it just by you being less specific, by you putting fewer constraints on the caller. Seems like a dream for library authors and then users is because the, the... there's so much more expression in a library for what is needed, what is returned, the uh, the behaviors, the context, like all like I don't know. It's just like in in typical OO, th- there's really only one thing you can express is is uh, I have these methods, right? You can construct me and call these methods. And and the methods are specific to that particular data structure and yeah. attached mm. to it. Yeah. One place I think it shows up is if you've ever called, I mean, you must have done this in Java, you like call, uh, you've got a list and you want to get to a list at the end, but you have to convert it to an array because the library author expects an array. And then at some point you switch it through a map to get back out to an array, which you convert back to the list. And finally you're back where you wanted. That kind of dance doesn't really exist in Haskell. Yeah. Because it, get, it gets implemented by the library author once, if they even need to care. Yeah. So code reuse could be argued as a big value of functional programming. But is there a, you know, if you were to say to somebody, um, here's the one most compelling reason to use functional programming, would it be code reuse? Would it be like, oh, oh we've mastered the code reuse thing? I mean, it depends who I'm talking to. If, you're, if I was talking to someone like me, I'd just say it's so flipping interesting. <laughs> That's my headline. Um, But practically, it's not so much, it is code reuse, but it's more doing more with less, you know, getting things, getting behaviors for free. I sometimes explain things with the contrast. So if I pick on Go, without generics, you end up writing the same boilerplate code for particular data types over and over again. And the language ought to give you that for free. And Haskell gives you a lot of stuff for free as a user, as a library author, and sooner or later in your own project, you're both because you're writing functions that you're calling. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So even in a small project, you are both a caller of function, caller of a library that you've made and the author of the library. If you can get stuff for free, that's really cool. Yeah. I think the headline thing for a practical working programmer is your code is much more reliable when it ships because you get more of your errors today rather than when they're seen by QA or CI or, God forbid, your user, and they come back on an email report. I want If, if I'm going to have problems as a programmer, if there are problems with the quality of my code, I'd rather know today, and I'd rather know before anyone else finds out. That's the selling point. I've, this is exactly kind of my journey of programming is I wrote a lot of, a lot of bad code that kept me up at night, you know, fixing production bugs. And now I I don't know if I'm older and wiser or just lazier, more tired maybe, but (laughs) I, I, I now want to try to, to, do that stuff up front so that I'm not woken up or having to well, you deal have with children production. to wake you up now. That's right. <laughs> you don't yes. need don't, you don't need yeah. anything else. Before that. children, my programs were my children, <laughs> and yeah. they kept me up at night and uh, had to feed them regularly. You know mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um, now with children, your problems come right at the last minute because they're late binding. That's, that's right. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So you said your first experience with Haskell was it was being used at, on the back end on a server, right? Yeah. So yeah. is that where you would say, okay, here's, you know, here's the, you know, the most compelling 
place to be using this or I mean, like, what if I wanted to create a Windows command line program? Um, I mean, you can do that in Haskell. Um, yeah. And there are some quite nice libraries for that kind of command line option parsing, which I've used. Uh, I wish I could think of the name of the one I've used a lot. But I can't. It's not coming to me. Uh -huh, um, yeah. Um, any kind of, like, your general purpose server-side language. Okay. That's a great place to start. If I were doing it on the front end, if I'm getting started, I'd probably look at Elm because it will help to teach you all the same principles. Yeah, right. Um, and does Haskell create like a standalone executable or does it require a virtual machine or something? Um, no, you can create native binaries. Okay. Um, and I haven't used it in anger, but I know they've been recently working on uh, much better ARM support, so you can do it on M1 Max and stuff like that. Mm. Is there a Haskell that runs on the JVM? Uh, there are a couple. One of them is called Freggy, which I've never really used. So there are uh, Etta, is the other one. libraries. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I've never. I've always ended up scurrying back to Haskell. Honestly, uh, if you told There's me there some... was a great Haskell JVM, I'd love you forever. <laughs> okay. Uh, in Haskell, the general runtime is what, GHC or something, I think I've heard? Yeah. So yeah, GHC the... is both the compiler and provides a runtime with lots of really cool features, like a uh, great threading model for concurrency, software transactional memory. I could mm -hmm. buzzword you about it. But yeah, it's cool. Um, and it it's a pretty fast compiler. Could be faster, but that's true of every large project's compiler. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it compiles to back-end binary on whatever you're using. Yeah. I'm not quite, so, there used to be um, a compiles to JavaScript, um, and I'm not quite sure of the state of that at the moment. It's not um, impossible to compile it to WASM. Are there like... Uh, Web sir, web frameworks that are commonly... yeah yeah. I mean, there's all the usual stuff you'd expect. Okay. So uh, there are several web frameworks. My one of choice is probably called Servant. Okay. Which is which I find really nice. It makes it very once you get used to it, it makes it very easy to write web servers and clients that connect to REST APIs. Um just by defining a rest api as a type and then having type classes that turn that into backend code or client oh, code or swagger yeah. documentation oh no the swagger piece yeah. too, the type class that's clever yeah it's a very nice library um there are implementations for just about con connecting to just about every database you can think of uh, including kafka put the occasional yeah, plug in for kafka um, yeah nice yeah um one of the things that I feel like I've seen from the world of Haskell is heavy use of operators. Is that is that correct? Like I feel like there's even a search engine where you can like go search for a given operator and Oh yeah. Um so there are. You can you can do that. I prefer not to. So like there's a package called Lens which goes a bit crazy with custom glyph operators and sometimes looks a bit like Perl to me. And when I've worked on Haskell projects, I've had a rule that we don't use those operators, but you okay. can. Um, I just don't think they help readability, and they don't actually save you much typing either in the long run. I, yeah. <sighs> Did, is this come from some of the you. kind of math mathy orientation of Haskell that people like like operators and math or something? Can I tell you my terrible theory? Yes. I think it comes from people that can't type properly. <laughs> You know, the Hunt and Peckers. It's right. awful, but I think those people are like, oh, this is only three characters. So that's yeah. a real saving. I don't, so are people like usually using VI or Emacs and they're not using an uh, IDE that's like auto-completing stuff for them? Um, so I have used VS Code, if that's your poison. I do know a lot of Haskell programmers that use VI or Emacs or okay. NVim. Yeah, um, so but, but you're that, not tied is, to it. Yeah, maybe that is a correct theory that that those operators are a little easier to type when you don't have the assistance of a IDE. So, so it's no well, I'm gonna defend Emacs and Vim. They both have great LSP plugins these true. days. Yes. So autocomplete is a thing there too. Mm. Um what year was Haskell did did it show up? 
<laughs> I now I'm going to risk dating. I'm going to absolutely date myself here. I remember being taught Haskell in '97 by Professor Graham Hutton. If you look into Haskell books, you'll probably find his one pretty quickly. And that was 97, and Haskell was at the point there where you could teach a bunch of university students, but I distinctly remember him apologising because they hadn't discovered monads at that point, and he was apologising that they didn't have a principled way to deal with the side effect of printing to the screen. Huh. That would be <laughs> embarrassing, <Huh>. yes. <laughs> yeah. um, so what would you say is the easiest way for you know beginners to start digging into Haskell if they want to? Um, so I think you've got two paths. If you want to go straight to Haskell, um, there's a tool called Stack, which is like a build tool, package manager, project creator, all in one, which is really nice. Um, it's easy to get started with, and it will take you all the way up to like production projects. Um, I learned from a book called Learn You a Haskell for Great Good which I really enjoyed, um, and I recommend that to anyone. The other alternative route is you could uh, look into Elm, which doesn't do everything that Haskell does, but it has all the big meaty concepts. Like It has the fundamental concepts. It does not um, have type classes. Which it is, doesn't have type I, classes. A lot of it does have around. a couple of built-in type classes, but yeah. it doesn't have user-defined ones. Okay. It doesn't have uh, higher kind of types. But it does have this idea so it's kind of, of controlling. Haskell. It's, it's Haskell minus minus, so it's maybe yeah. a good smaller surface area to start with. Yeah, and the main thing about Elm is it's absolutely best of breed in compiler assistance for not just throwing up errors, but telling you, really teaching you to understand what the error means, helping yeah. you solve it. Yeah, so it's like you know the way to climb a cliff is to cut stairs into it. <laughs> Yeah, it's a bit like that. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I've been very impressed with with Elm's error handling, and yeah. I know they spent a lot yeah. of time on it. And, and it's then a fun they language. Have their time traveling debugger. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, and I've I built, <clears throat> excuse me, I've built production projects in Elm front ends, mm -hmm. and it's really nice. It scales up really well. Yeah. Um, another thing we haven't talked about, which is true of any good compiler, is you get this whole system wide integration check, right? You, when you compile a code base, you are checking if every place this function gets called by anyone in the whole code base, we've at least checked that the types line up, right? Yeah. So we have a basic integration test that's built into the language. Now, if you add that to a language that has a really sophisticated type system that lets you say sophisticated things like, I take these specific kinds of things in the presence of networks, right? You you increase that from being a basic check to being actually quite a sophisticated, useful check that covers your entire code base without writing a single unit test. Yeah. It's really cool. Another great Strange Loop talk was Paul Snively and Amanda's talk on uh, types, not tests. Yes. Uh, yes. Delightful and definitely in line with us. Um, uh, there's a third path to learning Haskell, mm. which is to read the category theory for programmers book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I had I'd to fit category that. theory somewhere into this. Yeah, movie. we've barely mentioned that. Yeah. <laughs> Which I actually well. did start doing. Not that. Well, I didn't read the Haskell one because someone forked it and created a Scala version of that book. But I actually like. I like math, and so, and I don't know much about category theory, and so I wanted to learn about category theory, and it was actually a really good way to to learn about category theory. And I haven't finished it yet, but but I I. For me, it was actually, uh, and I, I did read some of the Haskell parts of that book, and it was helpful to learn Haskell syntax and how it correlated to category theory. Yeah, yeah I think it would be useful to know in a way that you could say, okay, I understand why some people go, oh, well, you have to understand category theory before you can do any of this stuff. But can I not, you know, can I explain it in a way that does not do that? <laughs> but yeah. To, under, to do that, you often have to know a lot more. Yeah. Um, I have, let's see, one other question, observation, or whatever was, um, so we interviewed Richard Feldman, who's creating uh, the yeah. ROC language, ROQ, 
ROC. ROC. Oh, it's yeah. ROC. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So he's creating the rock language. And one of the decisions he made in that was that he didn't need currying. And that was... Uh, not need. He didn't want currying. Okay. in teaching Elm, one of the common stumbling blocks that people had learning Elm was currying. And so he decided that the that the it was too too big of a stumbling block for him to want to include in rock and that he could live without it and that he could live without it yeah, that I found yeah i've actually argued w- with richard in the bar after a conference about this i i come down on the other side of the argument um i think if something's really useful and where we should be going as programmers then we don't throw it away. We figure out how better to explain it to people. Hmm. Um, and I, I would fall on the keep the useful tool, teach it better side hmm. of the argument. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I really like about Scala is that there's so many amazing tools in the language. And I think probably Haskell is in that same boat. Like there's as a, as a Scala professional expert, I think I would probably say like I know how to wield the many of these different tools now but it is very daunting to a beginner who has this massive surface area that they need to dive into and I think probably for for rock he was trying to keep the surface area smaller so that it was easier to learn but then there's the you can go so far as like go we've been picking on go so go the surface area is so small that as when I've done Go programming, I'm like, oh, I just wish I had this other tool or this other tool. Like, I've, I feel very, uh, like I'm missing yeah, all these the things. Yeah, but the simple. <laughs> so, so, so well, that's, you guys have just that had to recreate over, that, those tools or some everything. way to... Yeah, to, but it's simple. So, I think one thing we often forget, which, like, professional user interface designers understand, but programmers forget is that when we're trying to make things easy, there's a huge difference between making something easy for a casual user or a first-time user and making it easy for someone that's going to use this tool for 40 hours a week, every week, for the foreseeable part of their very, career. Yep, very good um, distinction. I remember I, Bjarne Strustrup saying, when we were on the standards committee, uh, saying that because um, w- when generics were being introduced and they seemed like, oh, this is this is or uh, templates, um, he said, OK, we're going to make a distinction here between the user programmer, a person who's a programmer who's a user and a person who's a programmer who is a library creator. So there's the library users and the library creators. The library creators have to know a bunch more in order to create these components that are then easily used by the consumer mm. of the library components. Mm. I think that relates to, I mean, here's, here's a warning for people getting to the edge of the Haskell cliff. There are so many interesting pieces of brain food in Haskell. There's a lot you can learn, a lot you can use. And if you get into it, there's loads of stuff that's exciting but you don't need to throw every feature into every project. And the core ideas of immutability and side effect tracking will just boring Haskell will get you such a long way. And I find it so much a nicer programming experience than any other language. You yeah. don't need to go into like astronaut stuff to get a lot of the value. It's like you can choose not to use Crane in your code base. I think yeah. part of the Wash challenge your mouth is out, but I get your point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the the idea that okay, there for for the new programmer, there is some kind of um, I don't know subset that they can use and be effective with, and then slowly acquire some of these other features, and that might make their code more sophisticated. But there isn't a well before you do anything, you have to understand category theory and how it applies. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, that's going to make it really inaccessible for a lot of people. I, of, I don't know, several years ago, I was revisiting Java generics and I came across this study that had been done and they found that something like 98% of all uses of generics were string. <laughs> 
everybody was just <laughs> using list of string, you know, string. string everything the genericized is <laughs> when most of the implementation. And what does that string. tell you? I mean, we understand, okay, you know, there are things that you can do, but it's like, does that mean that the vast majority of programmers are just doing string processing because they can get their heads <laughs> around it? I mean, that's a little scary to think about. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. I, I suspect there are. I mean, I know of a company local to me that uses TCL, and that's a language where everything's a string, right? So we're definitely not immune as an industry to string-based programming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. But yeah. We've got to try for the future, right? We've got to try for that better future. Oh, well, yes, that's what I mean. The, the semi-ironic meaning of the name of the podcast is, yes, we know when you say the happy path, you're ignoring all the problems. And yet we really we do striving. ultimately yeah. want to go and achieve a happier path anyway, where you can not have to be holding we all of that stuff in your own head convergence of easy and happy path mm -hmm. like yeah well and, and like reliable yeah exactly mm -hmm. the all that hopefully this things like haskell make it easier to program the happy path in a way that is reliable mm -hmm. yeah that's i think that's true i think that's true and i'll um throw in a bit of some advice at the end it really helps if you're learning haskell to find someone that knows it uh, because it's such an alien language, it can really help to have an expert say, that thing you're not getting, here's an explanation mm. you can understand, right? Here's, mm. a, here's a tailor-made piece of education for that stumbling block you've got. And oh, that's I, probably good. That's true for anything. Yeah. That's true. That is true. That's true for all learning. Yeah. yeah. There's probably good Haskell communities like on Slack or, you know, chat channels of some sort where people yeah. can uh, engage. And, and uh, get in this post-COVID world, there are good meetups for it. Yeah. Nice. Well, good. This has been super helpful. I, we do maybe at Winter Tech Forum, we'll actually write some Haskell. Oh, yeah. It'd be a fun way to dive in. Sure. Because then we could do it together. And I'm sure that someone will show up that knows Haskell. So <laughs> <laughs> it's happened. Chris Phillips. The trick is getting them to admit it in public. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think in our community, that's not so hard to get people or not. People wouldn't be. Yeah. yeah, knowing multiple languages is a good thing. Well, thank you, Chris. This yes. has been yes. super helpful. Um, and absolute pleasure. Yeah.